You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. And hey, it's Sarah. And today we are taking a look at another missing persons case. Today's case does involve a child who has gone missing. And just as a heads up, the pregnancy for the victim that we're going to talk about here is likely the result of sexual assault. So the topic of sexual assault does come up a couple times. If looking at missing children's cases or um, anything involving sexual assault is something that is difficult for you to listen to. This might be a good one to skip. And then you can join us again next week. But honestly, uh, this case reminds me a lot of the case of Wendy Eaton. If you guys remember when we did that back toward the beginning, she was another young girl that went missing seemingly just out of thin air. There was a sighting of a car. She was in close proximity to her home. And essentially, there were just no leads to go on. So this case that we're going to talk about today is very similar. So the victim that we're talking about today is Cherry Ann Mahan, and she was born August 14th, 1976 to a 16-year-old Janice Mahan. Her biological father was never in the picture as this pregnancy was a result of an alleged rape. It never went to court, so I use the term alleged not to discount the mother saying that she was raped, but just because it wasn't fully proven. And I just want to be cautious with how I refer to it. But eventually, uh, Janice, who is Cherry's mother, met a man named Leroy and they married. And through that, Cherry then had a father figure in her life. As soon as Leroy met Cherry and Janice, they just became a a really great family unit. Um, every article that I found that talked about the family just said that, you know, Leroy, Leroy really jumped right into the role of being a father um, and, you know, loving, loving Cherry as if she was his own daughter. Before Leroy came into the picture, Cherry and Janice lived with Janice's parents. And as a result, Cherry was very close with her grandparents. And even though Janice's age isn't important for any forensic reason, I just can't imagine being 24 and your child goes missing, your eight-year-old goes missing at 24. Like, you are not even considered to be fully matured until 25. So before your brain is even finished maturing, you're having to deal with your child going missing. And I don't know. Maybe it's because... My kids have been asking me all sorts of questions about the brain lately that it got me thinking about that. But I don't know. That just seems like a hell of a lot that one person has to deal with at that time. I don't even think it's just a age thing. I think it'd be hard at any stage for anyone, but even harder then. Oh, yeah. Not to say it would be easy if you're older than 25. Absolutely not. But I don't know. That just stood out to me. Um but Cherry was described as being a friendly child. She told everybody that would ask her that she wanted to be an elementary school teacher when she grew up. She was a very good friend and she loved her bestie, Lindsay. 
In fact, uh, the day that Cherry went missing, she was so excited because she and Lindsay were matching outfits to school. A bit of a book that I read here that I'm going to pull a lot of this information from is uh, Missing in Pennsylvania, Unsolved Cases from the Keystone State by Jen Baxter. Um, and in this book, it also pointed out that Cherry was sad on this Friday because she had gotten a run in her nylons. So she and Lindsay no longer matched because Cherry had a run in her tights. So two things. One, an eight-year-old wearing nylons, LOL. <laughs> Sign of the times. Um, And also this just like I feel like this hits me extra hard because last night I literally talked to my childhood best friend for like hours because we haven't seen each other in forever. So I can think back to when we were in elementary school together. We there was probably a point where we wore matching outfits and everything. And I can just I can feel it. Oh, absolutely. And it makes me so sad. Absolutely. So the day that Cherry went missing, it was described as just a normal day at school, according to her teacher. They had classes, and then they also took time to sit in a circle and just have conversation, which, like, just as a teacher, I wish I had freedom to just tell my kids to sit in a circle and let's talk about whatever we want. But that's not the point. The topic of their circle talk that day was things that were bothering them. And at some point during this conversation, Cherry said that she was frightened of her neighbor's dog. And at some point previously, this dog had actually bitten Cherry's arm um, to a point where she had like very long lasting scars on her arm from it. So can't really say I blame her for saying that she was afraid of dogs, but just kind of weird that that was the topic of conversation the day that she wound up going missing. Not her like, nylon run? Right, right. <laughs> During that school day, they also got their school pictures back. And Cherry was so excited to take her school pictures home to show her mom. Um, she tucked them into her backpack. But unfortunately, her mother would never get to see those photos. Uh, she also talked of sleepover plans that she had with a friend that night before she got on the bus that would take her to the last spot she was seen, her bus stop, which is about 50 yards from her house. So the end of the day comes, she gets on the bus, she's heading home, and it comes time to get off of her bus stop. Sherry got off of the bus about 4.10 p.m., Uh, She got off the bus with three other kids. It was a set of siblings and then a friend of theirs. So the three other kids all got into the same car to go back to their house. And uh, Cherry was to walk over to her driveway and then uh, wind up. I guess it was kind of a windy driveway up through the woods, about 100 or 150 yards long up to the house. So um, she did this all the time unless there was bad weather. You know, they trusted her to walk from her bus stop up to the house. But some of the kids on the bus that day noticed a blue van with a ski scene painted on the side of it. And after Cherry got off the bus and was seen by the mother that picked up the other three kids, nobody saw her again. The only remaining clues were a ski scene painted on the side of a van and some tire tracks in the mud. It is important to note that it was unseasonably warm. So obviously we're in Pennsylvania here. 
nearing the end of February. It was February 22nd and it was 55 degrees that day. So um, when Cherry's parents heard the bus approach, her dad was ready to go pick her up in his vehicle. But her mom said, you know, like, no, it's a gorgeous day. Let her walk. She loves the fresh air. It's going to do her good. And I know that she kicked herself for that for so long. And obviously it's not her fault, but she just like I watched a couple interviews with her and she just kept saying, like, I should have just met her at the bus stop. I should have just been there. This is so devastating because she was so close. Like this was not any sort of like negligence on the parents part. I mean, they basically knew that the bus was approaching and then um i i don't know if i read it or if you had said it that um the other mom who picked up those other kids had like waited until cherry was like out of the air like more toward her home yeah from the bus stop so i mean there was such a tiny gap of time and she was basically in her own driveway yeah it's just that's the worst it's It's terrifying it's terrifying And that, I mean, that's kind of why it made me think of Wendy Eaton, too. Now, she wasn't, like, in her driveway, but she was so close to home at the spot she had last been seen. Well, we did the case about uh, Maria, and she was last seen outside of her home playing with another little neighbor boy. Yeah, so many of them. It's it's crazy how how close to home you can be when things happen. Um, But... Uh, Like we said, whatever happened, it just seems like it happened so quickly that it might not have been avoidable regardless of what else was there. Um, I mean, the other parent said that, you know, she did also see that van, but she also saw Cherry walk over and like get to her driveway. So it must have just been almost impeccable timing for that van driver. Um But based on the stories from the kids on the bus and as confirmed by this mother, um, the van was either a blue or green van with a uh, snow capped mountain and ski design painted on the side of it. You can see um, we'll have a picture on the blog of it. And uh, Chelsea and Grace, if you scroll on the document, it's down at the bottom to see kind of what it looked like. So they did walk down the driveway eventually to search for Cherry. And when they did that, her parents didn't even see any footprints in lingering snow piles. I mean, like you guys know how spring can get in Pennsylvania. It snows one day and then it's 60 degrees, but you've still got the random snow piles sitting around. Um They said there was no footprints or anything in the lingering snow piles, but they did find the set of tire tracks that I mentioned previously in the driveway soil. So I'm guessing just kind of like the rocks or dirt on the side of the driveway, um, which was about 50 yards from their home. And then, like I said before, the bus stop was relatively 50 yards from the driveway and the driveway was about 100 to 150 yards long and it kind of wound up to the house. You couldn't really see the house from the road and you couldn't really see the road from the house. So it was very easy for her parents to know that something had gone wrong when after a couple minutes she wasn't in there. Um, And we'll kind of talk in a little bit about how her parents reacted as well. 
Now, I think that's so crazy. I mean, if they notice so fast, you'd think that there'd be such a fast turnaround for, like, cops to be involved or, like, can't get away that fast. Like, I don't know. Right. So, I mean, that's kind of a perfect segue into what I have next here, which is how police started searching. I mean, the family was calling within less than 10 minutes. They were out there looking for her, starting to call people. I'm trying to talk to friends, relatives, teachers, neighborhood, other just people that lived in the neighborhood. And um, they were really going rapidly jumping into action on trying to find her. And they did start searching the areas around the house immediately. They also brought in bloodhounds and helicopters to aid in the search. There were other investigators who were going door to door on foot, just trying to get any information they could. This continued for a few weeks, included nearly 250 different volunteers. Eventually, the FBI even got involved. Unfortunately, it was all to no avail. They did put her picture out just about anywhere they could. They got in touch with local media, um, including like television news, as well as newspapers and any sort of print media. And they were even writing to prisoners, hoping that someone who was in prison would know something. And they were hoping that maybe they could get someone to admit to something in the hope of like, reduced sentencing or making them look better the next time they're up for parole or something like that, um, which I thought was an interesting tactic, but none of it led anywhere. So the only thing that we did see positively come out of these first couple of weeks is just the way that the community banded together. Um, they ended up coming together and they were able to gather a substantial amount of money to use for a reward. And we're going to come back and talk about the reward a little bit later on. But after they realized they weren't finding her in the woods near her house and they had to start an investigation, um, they, of course, started by trying to locate the van. Apparently, blue-green vans with ski-themed paintings on them were, like, super common at the time. Like, there were over 2,000 vans in the area that were what? reported. And I don't know what the area means. That's all I could find in the source that I read. Like, it just said the area, so I don't know if that's, like, the county or the that's greater insane. Pittsburgh area. I don't or... care if it's, like, Pennsylvania. That would still be... Right? Insane. But I feel like that's 2,000 like, vans. I think that's super, I don't know, when I think about it and you see like 80s, there's tons of 80s movies like at the ski lodge and they're like crazy neon puffer suits uh, in the van and stuff like that. To me, it doesn't sound that crazy. Wasn't that like the in thing at the time? But like. Maybe. It just seems like a very specific design for that many vans to have. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It just seemed like a bigger number than I anticipated it being. And maybe they, like, all the vans weren't necessarily ski-themed. Maybe if they just Had matched the color or, yeah. or, yeah, something like that. Uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but despite there being that many vans, nothing ever panned out. So that led investigators to wonder if this was a person from out of town or if they had repainted the van Whenever they saw that it was in the news that people were going to be looking for a blue van with a ski design on it. 
The idea that it was someone from out of town became a bigger theory just a month later when a 12-year-old girl in Spring Hill Township, about 90 miles away from where Cherry lived in Cabot, was approached by a man in a blue van who asked her if she wanted to get a ride to school. Her bus driver turned the corner at the same time, though, and this man drove away. She was able to give a description of the driver. She described him as, quote, a heavy set white male around 30 years old with black hair, a beard and a mustache, unquote. The van was older and blue, but this time had a dragon on the door instead of a skier. Um, no more evidence ever surfaced from this interaction, though, and the lead went cold. What if it was the same van and one side was a ski scene and the other side was a dragon? And the people in like the or the kids on the one bus only saw the ski scene. Or he just repainted it because it was a month later. Or that. (laughs) My mom dated this guy um, who was a loser and he had a van and uh, he would repaint the design or pay someone to do the designs on the like outside. Um, It was ridiculous. Um, but Did they he were, ever have a blue one with mountains and a skier painted on it? No, he'd have like tigers or like the galaxy, things like that. Hmm. But I mean, I mean, if if I know someone who did it, I'm sure there's other people that would do that. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Especially sure. in the 70s. It sounds like a very yeah 70s thing. Yeah. Now, there was one van in the area that fit the description of the bus stop vehicle a little bit too well. Um, and it was being called into the police nonstop to the point where police would answer the phone. And if someone said they saw the car, they would just respond with like, is it this blah, 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 with, you know, give certain distinguishing marks and, you know, they'd confirm and they'd be like, it's not the car because it was called in so many times. Um, and police had already cleared the woman who owned the van. But of course, people kept seeing the car and they kept calling it in. And like, I feel so bad for that lady. You're probably getting pulled over a ton. You're getting a bunch of phone calls. People are looking at you funny. Like, and now I don't care as much about people looking at me funny, but I would get really irritated if I was getting pulled over constantly. Yeah. I had a friend who had the same vehicle as a guy that like ran away from a crime scene or something and this guy was at large for three or four weeks and throughout that time this friend of mine got pulled over like six or seven times and one of the last times he got pulled over the officer was like taking his time getting up to the window like probably calling in backup or whatever to a point where like when the officer did walk up this friend of mine was like hey i'm i'm not that person like here's all of my identification and proof and the last four signatures of the officers that pulled me over to prove that i am not who you're looking for i'd put like a bumper sticker on at that point like right (laughs) oh my gosh like it just it's ridiculous and you'd think like as soon as they run the license plate they would see like, oh, this person has been pulled over six times in the past month for not being the person we think they are. I don't know. Maybe the system doesn't show that, but I just thought that was interesting. But I just, I feel like that would be horrible to just keep getting called out all the time for something that you didn't do just because somebody had a similar vehicle to yours. But through all of this, Cherry's friends and classmates were absolutely remaining worried. Um, Her teacher would pass out 
like papers, worksheets, homework, all that kind of stuff. And she would always leave one on Cherry's desk. Oh, my she gosh. said, right. She said it made her feel like Cherry might come back if the top of her desk had all of her work on it, which that just breaks my heart. I, I can't imagine having a student that is like missing or anything like this and just not knowing. Anyway, the teacher did allow for more circle time discussions, and she found out that the kids weren't even just sad that Cherry had disappeared, um, but they were feeling extremely guilty. Jen Baxter, in the book that I mentioned earlier, writes, quote, Cherry's classmates were traumatized by thoughts that they should have done something different that day. Unquote. Oh, my God. They were, what, eight? Yeah, like that they're probably range. second graders. That teacher sounds awesome um, because I'm sure the parents kind of weren't opening up for discussion about certain things because they, I feel like, want to not brush things under the rug, but want to keep it like super PG for kids. But it's not always PG. Right. I mean, yeah, life isn't PG. You can protect kids to a certain point. But when... I mean, their classmate was missing. You have to let them acknowledge their feelings. You know what I mean? I totally get keeping children out of harm, but when they're experiencing it, let them talk about it. Sorry, that's my soapbox. But I fully agree. I love that this teacher did that. And I'm sure that some of these classmates do still carry it with them. I hope they've all managed to relinquish themselves of that guilt. But I mean, survivor's guilt really can just take over and it can be completely debilitating. So I truly hope that none of them are still dealing with it, but I'm sure that some of them still reflect back on that moment. As a part of an attempt to get Cherry back home, whenever her mom had to go back to work, uh, the family changed their answering machine to be a message for Cherry rather than necessarily a greeting for a voicemail. So her mom recorded a message to say, quote, Cherry, I love you. Read me the phone number off of the phone or call the operator and ask her to get the National Center for Missing Children in Washington. They'll bring you home, quote. And that hit me in the feels. Yeah, that destroys me. But how smart. Yeah, really smart. Like, set your set your voicemail to the message in case they happen to call because then at least you can give them action steps of what to do they don't have to wait for you to call back yeah it's kind of like i've seen and i don't know if we've shared it on the facebook or if we've talked about it on here before but it's worth mentioning if you are out somewhere that people don't necessarily know that you'd be there like if you go hiking for a day or um you're just out and about in an unfamiliar area and your phone starts to die if you go in and change your voicemail recording then if your phone dies you'll be able to like if someone calls you they can listen to the voicemail and at least figure out like where you might be oh interesting oh, i've awesome. seen that either on facebook or tiktok and i just thought that was interesting so Hmm. worth noting but this case was starting to gain national attention remember and i know you do because we've brought it up multiple times in the case of the boy in the box when they were putting his information out in the utility bills mm -hmm. so they kept that going um something similar happened here where a company called advo incorporated decided to add missing children to the direct mail postcard that they were sending out across the country weekly and Cherry was actually the first child to be featured on these postcards. And 
this ended up being the same system that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children took over and still use today. So Cherry was the first child to ever be released in that weekly distribution. What was the company originally? Like, what type of company? Was it a utility company? marketing firm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I think it was a marketing firm. I would have to double check, but... And I saw that information changed a little bit depending on the source. Most of it just referred to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This one that I pulled from the book kind of explained that it was the it was the predecessor to that. Like they ended up taking this effort over later. So they kind of just um, took over the network and right. Okay, that's kind of what I'm getting. So gotcha. if anybody knows more about this process and can inform me. Please correct me, but I think that's what it was. It just started as this company and then eventually the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children took it over. That's interesting. But like I said, Cherry was the first child to be featured on these postcards. And after sending out that distribution, over 3,000 calls came in, but none of the leads panned out. I think that would destroy me. Like that many leads and not a single one can pan out. Now, back at home, her mom had not changed anything in her room. There were even wrapped birthday and Christmas gifts sitting on her bed so that she would have them to open up when she made it back home. After more than 13 years, Janice decided to face the likelihood that Cherry had been killed and had her legally declared dead. Rather than saying this was a way of giving up on finding her, Janice still holds out hope that Cherry will be found, but declaring her dead allowed certain money that had been set aside for Cherry to be re-gifted over to her brother's trust. Um, And this brother was born four years after she went missing. Oh. Um, So by declaring her legally dead, they were able to take the money that was in her trust, put it into his. So I, I thought that was heartbreaking, but sweet. Yeah. Bittersweet for sure. Yeah. And it's sad that her brother will never get to know her at all. Yeah. Now, like her mom does say, you know, she lives on through us and her brother knows who she is and knows her story and knows enough about her, but still doesn't replace, you know, not knowing the actual person. Did she have any other siblings? Did you mention that? I did not, but she did not. Okay. No, she was because her mom was 16. Oh, right, right. She was very young. And then her dad didn't have any kids before marrying janice and then they just had the younger son together then after cherry was missing okay yeah i'm just i'm like so surprised like if i had a child go missing no way in hell i'd have another one well i don't know that that's just me that's i can see that um i think a lot of it too is it's part of the grieving process for some people to have another child Um, as terrifying as it is, sometimes facing that fear is the way that people have to take on that grief. So I've definitely heard people talk both ways on that. Um, but yeah, now shortly before her death, uh, Cherry had been in an accident that resulted in a broken left arm. And that's where most of the money that was in Cherry's trust that then got transferred over to her brother came from. She did receive a settlement of $3,500 as a result of that accident. 
and Janice had put that into the trust, and that's what was transferred to her younger brother. Now, additional money did come into the family through fundraising efforts in order to offer rewards for more information. This money ended up totaling more than $58,000. Her mom refused to benefit at all from Cherry going missing, so she turned around and donated that full amount to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Good for her. She truly has a heart of gold. That is so awesome. She could have kept at least some of it to say, you know, oh, well, I missed so much work. I still have to pay my bills. I'm at least going to take some of what people are offering me. Like, no, it was this is meant for helping find this missing child. And if it's not going to help find mine, I'm going to donate it to the whole organization. And Seriously, there's some of the links that we have on the blog as sources here um, have videos and just watching Janice talk on some of these videos and some of these interviews. I like she's just my new favorite person. Like, I just love her heart and her approach to things. Some people Um, really step up when things like this happen. And I mean, as terrible as it is, and you would never wish that on anyone. Some people just really... I don't know, not react well. That's the wrong phrasing, but right. they're just, I don't know, just very strong people. Yeah, absolutely. So from here, we just have a couple of theories that we're going to roll through. Theory number one is that the person who took her was her biological father. So the original thought was, oh, her mom is going to try to take bio dad to court to get money or she's gonna out him and say that you know he assaulted her and caused her to become pregnant so you know he was gonna have this whole big blow up so the thought is that um he was somehow behind this there's a lot more information to dispute this theory than there is to support it so janice identified an armstrong county nope let me try that again Janice identified an Armstrong County man as Cherry's father, but this man denied all paternity, which, of course, if you admit it, you're admitting that you assaulted her. So, of course, you're not going to admit it. Now, with Cherry missing, we couldn't exactly do a DNA test um, because there would be nothing to compare his DNA with to see if it matches for paternity. But regardless, there's a thought that either this Armstrong County man or whoever Cherry's bio dad truly was, was responsible for her abduction in order to avoid paying any sort of child support. But like, A, we don't even know who this guy is. So we're just kind of pointing fingers in the middle of a black void. There was never any payment agreement requested or set up. There was no attempt at communication from Janice to this man. Like, she just... There was no sign that she would have been trying to get money from him at all. And Janice truly loved Cherry. And when Leroy came into the picture, he took care of Cherry like she was his own, like I said before. So it's really unlikely that her mom would wait until Cherry was eight to start chasing her biological father to sort of, I don't know, incite any of this activity of trying to, you know, kidnap the daughter or whatever. Um, and like I said, there was no proof of any communication. I don't know. Sometimes uh, some women wait so long to go through like that agreement process because they don't really understand how much one or the other parent really owes the other one. It's like astounding. I, I mean, 
I had to go through child support uh, with my son's father. And he had it in his mind, like, I have my bills or no way they can ask me for anything over this. He was like, how am I supposed to live? And when we did our mediation, it was like a smaller amount and he wouldn't agree. He's like, no, I'm not doing it. But when we got to court, it was like five or six times more than what I originally asked. And he almost like shot the brick. And um, then he was like, oh, let's go back to the amount you said. And I was like, no, I had to come to court for this. So, I mean, I'm in a, right. in a like mainline parents group or divorce group or whatever. And um, just so many women don't un- understand how much money they could have or get back pay for as well. It could be a substantial amount. Well, I think the big thing with this is also that it was a sexual assault case. So I don't know how much that would play into any of it um, because obviously he's not going to admit paternity. So you can't force it because there's no, like Cherry's not there to, to give her DNA to confirm paternity or anything. Yeah. 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 But even if um, Janice was trying to like, before she went missing, he would get court ordered to take a DNA test. if she's going to do that. I've, I've seen it before. Um, if you're trying to do custody and you claim that it's a person, they have to take a DNA test unless they're not arguing it, obviously. (laughs) It just doesn't seem like Janice was trying to take him to court for any reason. And, um, I think if she was, there would also be the sexual assault element to it, but the statute of limitations would have run out on that by the time the child was eight. That's so true. I but I could see, yeah, I can see both. I mean, I guess if there, there would probably be a paper trail, right? If she was trying to do something like if legally. she was in the start of it there. And that's what I mean. Like there was no letters back and forth to any lawyers that was saying like, hey, I want to get into this process. Like she and her husband both said, you know, we weren't trying to go after him at all. So that makes um, sense. Cause I could see it why it can happen. Yeah. I could see why someone would wait for, I mean, she was very young. So like Chelsea said, like she would not understand basically what she's owed. It could also be because sometimes right. it takes a very long time to process, um, trauma like that. Um, right. So I could see why she would, but if I guess if there there would be some sort of sign that yeah. she had started some sort of either communication or legal proceedings. So yeah, and it's it was a solid theory to start with. Um, it just like when when more details came out, it just it fell apart very quickly. So of course, the next theory they went to: anytime an adult is missing or killed. We always go to the significant others, but with kids, we always have to start with the parents. So when they discovered that it was not her bio dad or likely was not involved with her bio dad, they looked into her mom and her stepfather. So as you can probably tell from everything that I've already said, uh, Janice and Leroy were very quickly removed from the suspect suspect list. Even considering the fact that her child may have served as a constant reminder of the trauma that she experienced throughout her assault, there is zero reason to believe that Janice would have any ill will toward Cherry. She really, truly just doted on her. Um, and Janice has even described their relationship as one where they grew up together, which I can totally see. I mean, I have friends that had kids at 15, 16, 17, and 
they truly did grow up with their kids and it's a a different bond um but i guess the one theory was that um janice and leroy just wanted to start their new life without any reminders of the past and so they were behind this but again that's another one that was very quickly disputed um they were fully cooperative they were fast acting in the moments of her disappearance like i said you know within 10 minutes they were rushing out yelling down the streets calling trying to find her um and they were just open to all investigative questions um they also both took and passed a polygraph which we know now is inadmissible in court but was a big thing in the 80s so they were fully cleared from there, uh, police tried to expand to neighbors and other people who would have known Cherry. After interviewing over 1,600 people, they came up completely blank. However, investigators do still believe that, quote, the person who took Cherry was most likely someone she was familiar with, someone who knew her habits, and who knew the neighborhood well, unquote which terrified everybody else. Yeah, right? Because then you would assume it was someone that was still in the area and still local instead of some random drifter. Right. So the last theory that we have here is actually Janice's theory. Janice believes that someone connected to Cherry's bio dad may have been involved, but not because of going to court for any sort of child support, rather because Janice had been outspoken about her assault, being raped and impregnated, and she believes that people who knew her rapist were watching for possibly the first day that Cherry wouldn't be greeted at the bus stop. So this thought is that the van was actually there, but either Cherry's mom or dad had always been at the bus stop until that day. So maybe this person was watching them, took advantage of that Friday afternoon when it was finally nice enough for Cherry to walk up the driveway on her own. So just this idea that this group of people knew who Biodad was, knew that he had fully raped and impregnated Janice, and then got afraid that Janice was going to start speaking up and caused a distraction, which ended up bringing more of the info to light anyway. So I don't know if I fully go for that theory, but I can definitely see where it comes from. So... We've had a couple updates over the past couple of years. Um, we've had a few more leads roll in as well. In January of 2011, a tip came in that was said to be crucial to the future of the case. No specifics have ever been released to the public, but police did say that an information source that was known to the child gave police information that would lead to a specific person or people in the case, which was a very confusing sentence when I read <laughs> it. So what I am taking that to mean is that someone who is very close to Cherry gave police information that helped police zone in on one or a group of people. I think that's what that means. I need to know who they are. <laughs> Yeah. So it is claimed that this is the most specific tip they've ever been given, 
but 11 years later, we still do not have any additional comment on this lead. So it, I'm assuming at this point it fell through. It's been 11 years. It had to have. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the only additional information that they released at the time was that if this lead is correct, it would mean that Cherry was absolutely killed, not just abducted, and would not be found alive. Yeah, Which seems like a weird caveat to add, but... So scary. Yeah. There was actually a thought at one point that she had a new identity and was living in Michigan, that um, it was one of those, like abduction situations where she was so young that she just went to a new house and they said you know no this is your name i'm your mom and you know they ended up tracking down the woman but based on dna they found that she was not in fact cherry but i would like, like to know that woman's story and right how what led weird to this? would that be like knock 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 hi are you a child that was abducted from pennsylvania in 1985 I I don't know which podcast it was on, but one of them did one about three, like, siblings or, like, half-siblings, and they all got taken by this, like, (laughs) nanny-slash-maid, but, like, their parents were kind of, like, poor, and it was, like, a crazy, crazy situation, and she was, like, giving, like, I guess working for people and, like, taking their kids but like the parents didn't know like she'd be working for them and gain their trust and then like disappear but she'd give them all fake names and these kids were like older like five or six and um it was crazy and the one woman uh was on the podcast talking she said how hard it was because she didn't have a social she didn't know what her name was every time she tried to get something the name and the uh birth date wouldn't match and so for the it took her forever to figure everything out and she found three other siblings wow holy cow yeah i have not heard of that but i need to look that up now that's wild because it's a true story but what this reminded me of is I don't remember if it was a made for TV movie, but it was called the face on the milk carton and the girl like saw it and she's figured out it was her. (laughs) And I guess her like biological or who she thought she, her biological mom was kidnapped her. And then her grandparents adopted her. Like it was super weird, but she was basically like saw this face on the milk carton was like, this is me and found her real family. That's so weird. Yeah. And it it just the premise really creeped me out, but I guess it can happen. Yeah, but that I mean, it it would definitely be weird to just, hey, we think you're this other person. Can I swab your cheek? Like what? I'm kind of really thankful that I look like both of my parents and my sister. Right. We're pretty squarely uh, their kids. (laughs) Right. So moving forward a couple years in 2018, some Jagoff sent a letter to Janice that detailed what happened to her daughter, how she had been killed, and where her remains were. The letter ended with, quote, I pray you find some peace after you find her body, quote. It is hard for her to tell if this is truly what happened or if it's just some sort of cruel joke. I mean, it is cruel if it's a joke, but we've seen people try to exploit families before all the time so following up on this letter because it did 
you know, give some details as to where her remains were. The police did search a hunting camp near the Lock and Dam along the Allegheny River. The homeowners were fully cooperative in allowing police to search the area. They did all sorts of searches like sonar and they did digging and soil tests and all sorts of things. But ultimately, they didn't find anything. Police did track down every detail within the letter, including every person that was named, every location that was mentioned, and it wound up bringing absolutely nothing new to the case. So that that is so, it's not just cruel, but it also uses up those resources, time yep. and money and energy and personnel yep. for just for your like sick pleasure. Right. I'll, like, I'll never LOL, understand. I was just kidding. Cool, you just wasted six months of police time. They deserve their own child missing. Their own like specific circle of hell. Yes. Dante, write a new book. Figure it out. We need the 11th circle. (laughs) All right. Wrapping up here, Janice is quoting as saying, quote, when people die, you have a body. You kiss the face, you put them in the ground and you say goodbye. That's something I've never had. This is not over. We'll always look for Cherry. If nothing else, she'll always be in our hearts, unquote. So Cherry is a white female with brown hair and hazel eyes. She was eight at the time of her disappearance. And at that time, she was four foot two and 58 pounds. She has a cowlick on the right side of her hair and has both of her ears pierced. We do have an age progressed photo on the blog that came from NamUs, along with a full description of her physical features and clothing from the day that she went missing. The most important elements to note are that she had scars on her left arm from the dog bite that I mentioned before, and that she had previously broken her left arm before she went missing. So that marking would show in an x-ray or autopsy report. Police have received many tips, but not the right tips. If you have information relating to this case, you can contact Pennsylvania State Police at 412-284-8100. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.